Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello LawPodders. My name is Connor McCormick. I'm a lecturer here in the School of Law at Queen's and this is my second time hosting LawPod in the space of a few hours. I am delighted, therefore, to have Kieran Moyna as my co-host for this episode of the podcast. Kieran is a solicitor advocate specialising in criminal law and public interest litigation in Northern Ireland, among other things. And he is, I think, best described as a driving force behind many efforts to protect and improve the legal rights of the LGBT plus community here in Northern Ireland. Say hello to our LawPod listeners, Kieran. Hello, it's a pleasure to join you today. Kieran and I have the very great pleasure of being joined today by Master Victoria MacLeod. Master MacLeod is a Master of the Senior Court in the Queen's Bench Division of the High Court in London. In 2016, she was involuntarily outed by the tabloid media as being the first transgender judge, but made no public comment. She was first appointed in 2006 as a Deputy Cost Judge and Taxing Master, at that time as Deputy Master Victoria Williams, and later appointed to office as a Queen's Bench Master in June 2010. Alongside her main appointment, she also sits as the Acting Admiralty Registrar and as a Deputy Cost Judge and Taxing Master. She was the second female Master to be appointed and is thought to be the youngest Master appointed of either sex. She tries and case manages High Court claims in most areas of Queen's Bench Division civil litigation. She holds a degree and a doctorate in experimental psychology from Oxford and she is a chartered psychologist qualified in both the UK and the Republic of Ireland. After converting to law at City University, she practised as a barrister from 1995 until 2010. And while her day job is as a judge, Dr. McLeod also has academic interests which include the regulation of big data and emerging artificially intelligent and autonomous technologies in society. And she is a member of Green Templeton College at Oxford, where she's connected with the Centre for Socio-Legal Studies at the Faculty of Law. As if that weren't enough, to keep her busy, she has been an editor of Civil Procedure, the White Book, since 2000, and is the author of other legal books, including the Civil Procedure Handbook, the Surveillance and Intelligence Law Handbook, and Personal Injury Pleadings, as well as academic papers in fields such as Surveillance Law and the Online Court. And she's also associated with discussion around improving the ways in which historic child abuse claims are handled, with a view to causing reduced psychological harm to admitted victims of abuse. Master, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Hello, it's good to be here. Thank you. Now, as it is Belfast Pride Week, and you're here to deliver the second annual lecture in the Belfast Pride Festival for law, following in the footsteps of Lord Kerr of Tonic Moore, who delivered our first lecture last year, could I begin by asking you which of those many um, distinguished achievements in your professional past I listed in your introduction you're most proud of? Goodness. Um, I think probably... And it might come as a surprise, um, is the writing I've done for the, the white book, the civil procedure book. Um, I, that was my earliest opportunity, really, to do some really professional writing very early on in my career. It brought me into contact with a lot of people who became friends, judges, senior lawyers, and I learned so much from it. And it was a wonderful opportunity that I got very early on. How did the opportunity come about? Our students might be interested to know. Uh, well, I, I, uh, just about the time I was qualifying, I wrote a book on civil procedure 
Um, that was just off my own bat. I had a um, contract for writing it, but it was it was more of a student book. Uh, and I was invited to to join the the White Book to write for them straight after that, um, and was very greatly honoured because it was a book on civil procedure, and that is the great the great book on civil procedure. That's if you like the bible of civil procedure in the High Court. Um, and uh, to be asked to write for that was such a privilege. And and many students would uh, believe that their success in a, a legal career would be down to experience in court and talking to clients and doing the case work. Um, do you feel that you had a competitive advantage attending the bar um, after the academic or the writing, um, which I think many students listening may not actually think would be worthwhile or something to include if they were um, intending to practice? Yes, I do. Uh, I, I came to the bar slightly older because I did my doctorate in psychology, of course. So I was um, 29, 30. Well, actually, I think I qualified at 25, but I was really starting practice about 28, 29 and of course, the experience of having a different academic subject, having written my thesis, having had professional colleagues in that context, having given talks and seminars and lectures and dealing with people in that context gave me the research skills. And it really equipped me for the bar. And I don't think I'd have been quite so well equipped if I'd just gone straight into the bar. Actually, a bit, a bit more maturity um, helped me a lot. One of the other... Um questions that sprung to mind whenever I was reading the introduction there was um, in relation to what spurred you to apply initially to a judicial post. You know, there's a lot of um, information out there at the moment about the difficulties um, that that exists at the moment in terms of judicial recruitment in particular to the High Court. So what drew you to, to a judicial office in the first instance? Well, I, I've got a very, I mean, a very specific example, actually, of how it sometimes takes someone specific to encourage you because I, I my first appointment was, was as a deputy cost judge and part of my practice at the bar involved quite a niche area which is costs work um, challenging bills um, in the costs office the cost court in London and um, that was just a part of my general common law practice and shortly after I'd started a new chambers uh, a senior member of chambers mentioned to me uh, that there was a deputy cost judge appointment being advertised through the Judicial Appointments Commission. And just the fact that he saw that and thought of me and took the idea of me applying seriously. He didn't suggest I applied. He just said, said to me, did you know that's being advertised at the moment? The fact that somebody else had thought of that when it didn't hadn't crossed my mind, I suppose, gave me that permission. Uh, and then I applied for that. I got that. Uh, spent four happy years being a deputy cost judge before a full-time appointment came up. Uh, as a QB master. And in, in terms of your appointment, you, you're one of the youngest masters and only the second female master. Um, and the judicial appointments are, are always on a big drive to increase diversity um, on the bench. And that's a really important issue. And what's your experience of that? Um, well, it, it's pretty well known. Uh, I, I think that um, myself and a number of other judges are in the middle of litigation over pensions, uh, which is to do, in fact, with discrimination, because there is an issue uh, over the fact that women and minority groups tend to be younger as a result of the recruitment drive, in fact. And as a result of the way that the pay and pension structure is worked out, that means that women and minority groups tend to be paid a lot less for the same work. And that's a case that's going through the courts at the moment. Um, up for second appeal by the Ministry of Justice in, in November. So in, in that sense, um, that's, that's a downside. Um, but 
as a career, I've encountered a lot of wonderful people from all sorts of backgrounds. Uh, and, and, of course, you have a, a lot of this diversity in a different sense among the judiciary in the sense that there are lots of different sorts of judge as well, mm-hmm. people with different specialist backgrounds, people with different academic backgrounds. So it isn't just sociocultural, it's also professional. And mixing with all those people has been a really great thing. I want to kind of follow up on that um, comment just by asking a bit more about the person who encouraged you to apply in the first in- instance and whether that experience has um, encouraged you to mentor anybody else since? Uh, yes, I, I mean, I, I'm very conscious of... I often have people sitting in my courtroom, sitting with me, observing uh, students come come and sit. I'm part of the Lincoln's Inn marshalling scheme, so I, I have at least one student each term come for a week or two um, to sit in with me. Um, sometimes I'll get more senior people, perhaps for thinking of judicial appointment, but I think it's very important always to treat people as, as your equal. It doesn't matter what career stage they're at, because if someone's got the ability, then they're already your equal. They don't need to have proved it already. They need to, to be um, treated as people who can make it, who can do it, taken seriously, and asked about what they would like to do for their future, shown how to do it, um, and uh, approached from the position of um, not, not testing, but enabling I think. I mean, that that raises, or it links nicely into a question I was going to ask, actually, about making the law accessible, um, not only to people who want to practice it, but people who come into contact with it as litigants. Um, And I was reading a recent decision you handed down in, I think, June of this year, in the case of Warsama against the Commonwealth Office. And I, I noted with interest that at the top of the judgment, there was an accessible language summary of the case. And if you don't mind, I was just going to read out the summary um, for the benefit of our listeners. Um, It reads as follows. An act of Parliament called the Bill of Rights means that people cannot sue if a member of Parliament speaks freely or debates in Parliament. It also protects proceedings in Parliament from people who want to start court proceedings. This is a court decision about the claims of social workers who are suing the government and a lawyer about a report which criticised them. The government paid the lawyer for her work and she was in charge of the inquiry which wrote the report. The report was about child abuse on St Helena, which people had said happened there. The government and the lawyer said that the social workers cannot sue them because Parliament published the report using proceedings in a Parliament and the Bill of Rights prevents them from suing. The judge's decision is that the report is free speech in proceedings in Parliament and the social workers cannot sue about what the report says. The most senior court decided in the past that the business of Parliament includes free speech or debate, and the Human Rights Court in Europe has decided that it is legal to protect free speech in debates in Parliament. The judge said that the social workers can sue about the way the government and the lawyer produced the report. The decision also says that the lawyer had to obey the Human Rights Act 1998 and protect the human rights of the social workers when she was in charge of the inquiry about the child abuse. The judge allowed the government, the lawyer, and the social workers to appeal to the appeal court. And there ends the summary of what is clearly a very important case about the separation of powers and parliamentary privilege, among other things. And I suppose my question, my first question about the case is, um, what was your rationale for including that innovative accessible language summary, which means that people with, I think, a, a flesh score of above 50, meaning that... Average reading age. Average reading age. Yes. That um, they could understand it. 
Yes. Um, well, I, I mean, as I was writing it, I was thinking to myself um, that, that obviously there would be people who, who wanted to understand it, but the language in, in the judgment itself is inevitably lawyers' terms. It's fairly technical. And I passionately believe that anyone can really do anything. Educational level shouldn't be a bar to understanding important concepts and to accessing the law. And language is often used as a barrier, unconsciously or consciously. It was an interesting test for me to see if I could write a coherent summary at average reading age. And in a sense, if I can't, perhaps there's something wrong. Um, perhaps if a decision I make isn't capable of being rendered inaccessible, then I need to go back and think about the decision. Um, my ideal would be that the whole of the law is capable of, and what lawyers do, and what judges do especially, and what courts do, is capable of being understood by everyone, because I think at the moment perhaps the average person doesn't really know what judges actually do. I think people sometimes think that judges are there to be judgmental, uh, that we hear a case and we decide what we, what we think, what we like, what we don't like, uh, and uh, judge people in that sense, when in fact being a judge is the opposite of being judgmental. It's a mental discipline where you hear evidence, you approach it neutrally, you try to set your own prejudices aside and preconceptions aside, and you apply law and principles in a dispassionate way. And I think the more that people can access the law and understand the law in terms that someone perhaps for whom language, English may be a second language, the more we can achieve that, the greater the understanding of the importance of the rule of law and the role of the courts will become. I mean, I think that's a wonderful Absolutely. innovation and it reminds me in a sense of what uh, Justice Peter Jackson's been doing in the family division, writing child-friendly judgments. It seems there is a trend mm. in, in you know, mm. current judicial... Actually, I wanted, yes, I should pay tribute. You just reminded me of something. I, I, I remember in pupillage, um, and I, I wonder whether this was lurking at the back of my, my mind. You've, you've, uh, in, in pupillage, I remember I, I did a lot of work following my then pupil mistress around, uh, doing family work and a lot of children work in some pretty uh, sad cases. And I remember that my pupil mistress had to advise a mother who had um, quite a low mental age in what I think was either a care or adoption case. And I remember her making an effort and involving me in making that effort to write an advice at a linguistic level that she could understand and having to deal with some emotionally very difficult things by way of bad news. And I think, and you have just reminded me of that by asking me that question, I think perhaps that is, an, is another example of someone influencing me at a very early age. So I'll give Christine Sheldrake mm -hmm. a, a shout out on air. I think the access to justice and the issues with that are so interesting and in practice I come across that nearly on a daily basis, especially when I, I'm, I'm doing LGBT work because not only these people um, that come may have difficulties and struggles with accessing courts, um, that their sexual orientation or gender identity is then another barrier on top of those matters and they very often are afraid of being outed by courts mm. or again judged by judges or that their case doesn't fit into 
the run-off-the-mill processes that courts are used to. And is there anything you can think of judges in increasing awareness of maybe, you know, in family law, alternative family structures or, or different types of relationships and different types of people in society? Well, certainly I've I've heard horror stories from, from the past in mm-hmm. terms of, of what judges used to be like. My genuine personal experience of judges is that there are extraordinarily fair-minded liberal people uh, who genuinely try not to be prejudiced and genuinely approach people with a realistic view of the real world. Um, If somebody's trans, say, um, and maybe they've scrabbled around for a living for a long time, they've done jobs that are unimpressive or um, they've led a difficult life, that is something that a, a judge is going to set aside and ignore because they understand that it's actually just part of life and they will try to look at what matters. That may be a rosy-eyed view from someone who's who, of course, hasn't been necessarily on the receiving end mm-hmm. of judgments from the court, other than, I suppose, in the case that I mentioned earlier on discrimination, <laughs> which I have one so far. Um, but that isn't quite the, that isn't quite the judgment yeah. about me personally. Um, and it's a very disempowering thing, I think, to be on the other side of the table if you're the person mm-hmm. who perceives that judgments are being made about you. And I, I always remind myself of the, the, the classic thing, that it's the losing party that really needs the judgment because they need to understand what's happened uh, and they need to know that there are re- that there are reasons um, that it's not a question of just being judged on a prejudicial basis. But um, one of the things that I'll be saying this evening, unsurprisingly, uh, in the lecture that I'm giving later today, um, is uh, the need to make sure that we continue to have people on the bench who are from from all of the different types of background. Because you have to be, uh, if you're trans, you're a visible minority most of the time. Um, we need visible and invisible minorities on the bench. People need to walk into a courtroom and see someone like them. Equally, judges need to see people who are not like them as well. Mm. It needs to be a mixed environment, and it's so much nicer when it is. Yeah. I wonder if we might move on then to the, the second question I had arising from the Warsaw case. I mean, I say my second, I could ask a million questions about it, but <laughs> given the time frame, the, the other... Um, passage that I left it out was there, paragraph 13, I'll just read it aloud, it, where you say, um, there does not appear to have been a judgment which deals with the issue in the case. It is my duty, therefore, to provide this no doubt unworthy decision so that greater appellate minds may identify and consider where and how far it falls short. So your words in that paragraph struck me as particularly respectful, courteous, humble, if a little bit too modest. Probably uncharacteristic on my part. <laughs> I'm sure the Court of Appeal would say. <laughs> uh, but that, that in turn sparked a question in my mind about the division between the, the, the cases that are given uh, and fall within the jurisdiction of a Master of the High Court as compared to a Justice of the High Court. Um, and I wondered if you could sort of outline mm. the historical distinction mm. and whether you feel it's changed since you've taken office. Um, yes, I can't remember the name of the case. I gave a judgment earlier, um, I think it's Abdul, um, in which I actually set out the history of how the Queen's Bench Masters came about. Uh, originally, the Masters were court officers. They were court officials back in the Victorian era around about the uh, Court of Judicature Act. Uh, and over time, they gradually were given judicial powers. 
They were gradually characterised as judicial officers and then as judges. So that unlike the justices, who have always clearly been judges of the High Court, masters have sort of crept up on it through a series of statutory developments over the years so that it's not possible to point to one statute and say that statute makes you a judge. And in fact, in, in Abdul, I, I was... Um, uh, and I think that was Abdul against the Home Office. Uh, it was a um, terrorism closed evidence procedures case. Um, I was asked, I faced a challenge to my jurisdiction and it was said that I was not a judge of the High Court. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting exercise in demonstrating by way, if you like, of a, a root of title uh, mm-hmm. on unregistered land, um, how it came about that, in fact, a master is a judge in the High Court. Now, in terms of the everyday division of work, uh, puny, uh, High Court puny judges, I'll call them puny judges strictly, a master is actually a puny judge because we're first instance judges too, but what we conventionally call a High Court judge is someone who is assigned to a division, such as the Queen's Bench Division, but in fact has jurisdiction across all, all divisions, including crime. Uh, they are the most powerful first instance judges. They can send people to prison, which I can't do. Uh, they have jurisdiction over certain sorts of injunctions, such as freezing and search and seizure and so on. Um, masters have an interesting job because what we do is we manage cases but we also sometimes try them as well. And when we try them, we try the cases we manage. So it, we have the, the luxury, if you like, of seeing the case right through from start mm-hmm. to finish and, and afterwards, which can make it great fun. It means we try fewer cases because, of course, we do a lot of our time managing cases that other people will uh, try. But it makes for an interesting and varied and increasingly responsible role. And on the on the title master, you you, you insinuated it came very from very proud of the title master. Yes. Um, do, do you think there there should be gender titles? Uh, uh, that's a very interesting uh, debate. It's it's been it's definitely uh, alive. Uh, my um, colleagues, if they are listening to this, will find this quite amusing. Um, it's definitely been a live topic of debate, and different people take different views. Personally, I strongly support the retention of the title master. Um, it's not. It's not intended to have gendered connotations. Uh, um, in fact, it really means someone who has mastery of something, someone who is good at something. It's a very ancient title. It does actually go back a very long way before the Victoria, certainly very far back. Um, it's a common law title. It's increasingly being colonised by women. Uh, and my perspective, and others certainly differ, uh, but m- my perspective is, is that the last thing one wants to do is to see women colonising that traditionally male space, only then to define it into non-existence and erase those achievements. I suppose if we move away from the Warsama case then, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about your extracurricular interests. You know, I, I noted in the biography at the start that you're um, known for having an interest in autonomous technologies. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if you could speak a bit more about that, because here at the Law School at Queen's, they've just recently installed a professor of law and innovation as a chair, a new chair. I'm going to say that installed a robot uh, <laughs> as the professor. Is that word installed? Well, that's what they must behind my back. I don't know. Um, but no, we've installed a new chair who's, who's dedicated to looking into really? innovations in the yeah. law, and particularly in relation to technology and how the law is going to cope yeah. with those kind of um, developments. So mm. I wanted to know a bit more about what interests you mm. in that. Well, I, of course, if you go back to my early days, I, I read psychology at Oxford, and my doctorate was actually in something which is pretty close to uh, computational science, really, because it was visual psychophysics, which involved 
uh, trying to ascertain how the brain computationally combines sources of information from multiple sources in order to see the world in three dimensions. Uh, now, that was back in the 80s, um, so computer technology wasn't as advanced as it is now, but even then we played with neural networks, we played with artificial machine vision, and a, a lot of it was around that sort of work. And ever since I've been a child, I've been a computer nerd. Uh, I, I, I um, Me too. was one of those 80s computer kids, uh, and um, uh, I have a collection of vintage computers, some of which I've restored. Um, I'll give a shout out to the Commodore PET 2001 series, <laughs> uh, of which I have at least two. Uh, and um, uh, so I've always been fascinated. My, my, my father was a, a rocket scientist in the days when we had a space program. That's a long time ago. Uh, they had me very wow. late in life. Uh, and he introduced me to computers very early. My first experience with a computer was that he took me to a, an evening school. He used to teach for the Open University and he was babysitting me I suppose took me took me to the evening school and left me in a little side room whilst he went off to teach his his uh, undergraduates and he left me in a room with a teleprinter and it was a computer mainframe link there was no screen it was a teleprinter link to a mainframe and I, there was I left communicating with this alien intelligence down down the teletype I was about six I think uh, and so I've been absolutely fascinated by computers ever since. I used to be fluent in quite a number of programming languages. I'm not anymore. Um, although I picked up Python about a year ago. Um, so it interests me. Artificial intelligence, therefore, interests me. Neural networks, I did a lot of programming. Then I became a lawyer. And, of course, now what has happened in the years since I finished my doctorate is that technology has exploded. Uh, memory capacity in particular has got vast. Computational speed has expanded as we expected it to Moore's law um, but on top of that we've got the internet which I think is the thing that wasn't necessarily fully foreseen which is a digital ecosystem so you have a jungle in which an AI system can wander and explore and learn and pick up prejudice with it, with it something I'll be talking about in fact tonight um, that brings us to what do you do when eventually we get systems which are autonomous or semi-autonomous what happens if you have a ship that hits another ship one ship's driven by humans, the other is steered with no humans on board, with the ship deciding what to do for itself. The law isn't yet fully equipped to deal with those complex situations, and it's an area that, if you like, merges two of my sets of interests. Yeah, I've read there's a bill, is there a bill or an act that's either being passed or soon to be passed in relation to autonomous vehicles? I think, I, I don't know if it's going to be passed. It's certainly being worked on. I think it's probably about the criteria for trialling them and, and mm. allowing, uh, allowing them on the roads. Um, one imagines that it'll be slightly easier during the period when the rules say you can allow the vehicle to drive, but you've always got to be in the driver's seat in mm. a position to take control because then you've still got a human with ultimate control. Mm. When you actually get autonomous vehicles that are making decisions for themselves, life and death decisions in the event of an accident, um, decisions about whether to go, if you're a vessel at sea, whether to go to the rescue of another vessel or not, or which vessel to go to rescue, all of those things. Mm. You've got a whole new sphere of the point at which you cease to draw moral accountability and legal accountability on the human side and start drawing it on the computer side. And what on earth do you do? Do you see it as product liability, <laughs> act of God, uh, design defect, or uh, sue the computer, which should have insurance? It, it, where Where is it going to go? It's not been fully thought through, and it's, it's just a very interesting area. 
and the legal profession isn't exempt either. I suppose there's a lot no. more of automation in that. And we, we've seen firms um, come to Northern Ireland that are, you know, document discovery and they're trying yes. to introduce technology in there. And yes. I suppose the role of practitioner, practitioners mm. will maybe very different in the future. I think on mass disclosure and mass discovery, um, it's going to be quite important as a way of it might be slightly rough and ready. I don't know how accurate the uh, character recognition in those sorts of systems are. But on the other hand, some people would say, well, it's better to have a, a big search through all the documents than to have perhaps a very selective search that's perfect. Uh, and it could be done very inexpensively, presumably, if a machine is just doing it around the, the clock. Those sorts of things, I think, can probably be seen as as tools, um, as, as aids. Um, one could envisage expert systems to help judges in sentencing, which would be akin to, a, a, if you like, a clever textbook. I can't yet foresee uh, on the medium or short, in the medium or, or short term, certainly not the short term, um, computers being judges. In fact, I query whether they ever could be any more than a human judge could be a judge of a computational entity. If you imagine uh, a computer plunged into a courtroom, that computer wouldn't have grown up as a human. Yeah. Uh, that computer has had its own uh, life. It understands its way of thinking. Uh, its internal world may be very different. It may not be best placed to understand human morality, human law. It might be very well placed to to be a judge of its own kind in its own world. Uh, I, I can't imagine, for example, if, if uh, beneath the ice caps of Mars we found intelligent life, uh, that we would think it was fair to subject them to human judgment mm. in human courts. We, we would allow them to have a court of their peers. I mean, I think that opens up a big question about the skills we provide to law students. And one of the things we've been thinking about here recently, actually, is um, how to integrate so, some knowledge of computer programming with legal analysis, because whenever it comes to subjecting these new systems to legality or sort of standards of legality it's going to take a skilled mm. group of professionals to do that and I think there, there definitely seems to be a hole there um, obviously you've, you have an interest that goes way back to your, your father mm. but um, I think there's maybe a need to design some sort of new courses that maybe make, make a project of it. I think it's important for people to, I think it's very important for children actually to start young um, Conventional programming is an important skill. It's like reading and writing. Um, but I think more than that, I think that people, students, at whatever age, I think people should probably have a broad education in terms of how those sorts of systems work, um, how, how logic works, how a neural network forms associations between inputs and outputs. That's a system that programs itself, essentially. Um, simply learning to program it, to program, is a bit like learning to make a, a, a kit model. Um, it's a type of understanding of computing, but it isn't the whole thing. It's important to understand, if you like, the philosophy and to understand the, uh, the principles that lie behind it. I think I gained that because of my very early exposure to computers. Um, so it needs to start early in life. But I certainly think that lawyers in, 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 in the future world, probably really the current world, really do need a broad-based scientific training, not just programming, but a scientific training and a training in formal logic, apart from anything else, would be useful. Mm. In that regard, I'm going to give a plug for my favourite book, um, yeah. Gödel Escherbach by Douglas Hofstadter, 
a book that uh, I read when I was 15, and it changed my life. It's a marvellous thing. I think it won the Booker Prize for science. Uh, and it's a work of art, work of logic, work of science. It's a beautiful thing, and it stimulates your mind from all sorts of directions. Uh, and uh, I think all undergraduates of any subject should be forced to read it. Fantastic. Well, we don't get much of a summer in Northern Ireland, but there's your summer well, reading list sorted. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, Master McLeod, I think that's probably all the time we have um, for the podcast. It has been fascinating, very. Absolutely. Um, so thank you so much again for agreeing to do it. Um, I can't wait to hear your lecture in full later this evening. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed tech and current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by me, Conor McCormick, and Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. Many thanks again to Master McLeod and to Kieran Moyna for taking part in this episode. You can follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today, including a link to that reading recommendation. You can find us on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Conor McCormick, and this was LawPod.